Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by my co-host, Medea Ucher, LARB's managing editor. Hi, Kate. Hey, Medea. This was a very, very exciting interview that we have today. We spoke with Isabella Rosalini. Yeah, I still haven't calmed down. Well, especially because it just happened. It so. just happened. <laughs> yeah. So I'm still feeling it, too. Um, she is here in town in Los Angeles for her show, Link Link Circus, which is at the Lodge Room in Highland Park. Right. Until next week. I'm going to go tomorrow. Are you going? I will go next week. I watched a trailer for the show, and it looks like my ideal experience, which is a dog wandering around and then a bunch of puppets and Isabella Rossellini in the middle of it. <laughs> that, that combines a lot of my passions, too, so yeah. I definitely got to go. And, and um, the sets uh, are made by uh, an artist named Andy Byers, mm-hmm. and we talk about him in the interview, and actually that's how I came to get this interview for us, because I met him at a party and was telling him how I wanted to interview Isabella, and um, he said, oh, I work for her, and that's Amazing. how it happened. So I think it was meant to be, and this was a wonderful interview, and she's just, you know. A superstar. A superstar. But also and, lovely. A lovely superstar yeah. and, and um, incredibly intelligent and thoughtful and has a good sense of humor. I was remembering this morning how I first was introduced to her, which was that I was in high school and I, I think I was sick and I decided to watch Blue Velvet. And at the time we had an, a Bulgarian housekeeper who was helping us <laughs> care for my grandmother and she was in the room and this Bulgarian housekeeper and I sat and watched Blue Velvet together in the most awkward of silences for, and I, I'm sure she had no idea what was going on, and I thought it was completely inappropriate. Mm. Um, and yet she she kept on watching. I and that's <laughs> the point. <laughs> we were both we both just sat there until it was over. I had a similar like, transfixing experience with that film, and um, I wrote on my bathroom door, or my friend maybe wrote this, "Hit me, hit me, hit me," over and over again, just Whoa. like in the film, because we were so blown away. I don't think I'd ever seen anything like it. Sounds cooler than my experience. I don't know. (laughs) I think your experience sounds really cool. Um, Anyways, let's listen to our interview. Let's do it. We have the honor of having Isabella Rossellini in the studio with us today. Isabella is a legendary actress, model, and filmmaker. She has appeared in many classic films like Blue Velvet, Wild at Heart, Big Night, Death Becomes Her, among many others. Her award-winning series of shorts, Green Porno, Seduce Me, and Mamas, offer funny and insightful studies of animal behavior. Her book, My Chickens and I, was published in 2017. Rossellini also runs an organic farm in Bellport, New York, but she's in Los Angeles for her latest project, Link Link Circus, a theatricalized lecture that focuses on the links between humans and animals, by Darwin's Theory of Evolution. The show includes Rossellini's short comic films, home movies, and animations. Her dog, Pan, is also in the show. Yes. <laughs> Isabella, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Besides my dog, also Andy Byers, who is a puppeteer, because we also have puppeteering on stage, and also Andy designed all the costumes, the sets, the music. So he's an oh, important wow. person, but we always talk about dogs with him, too. Do you understand that you just mentioned a dog and not him? (laughs) (laughs) The dog did not do all those things, so we should credit Andy. And Andy is also who did the background sets for Green Porno, Exactly. All my short films, we have been working together now for 
12 years together. Wow. Oh, wow. Those are fabulous sets and puppets there, too. Let's just talk a little bit more about the premise of Linkling Circus. What did you want to explore with this show? So... I always say that I would like the audience to have two reactions. The first one is to go, ha, 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 a laugh, because all my work is comical. And then to have a second reaction afterwards is, ah, I didn't know that. So it's, ha, 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 ah, this is what I like. All that I write is based on science. I have a master's degree on animal behavior and conservation, and that degree had helped me a lot to access scientific papers that often I'd written kind of difficult to read and boring to read, but it's fascinating science. So I try to translate it into something that is entertaining because I'm an entertainer. I've always been an entertainer all my life. And I'd love to hear when in your life you got this master's degree in animal behavior and why. You know, I was working as a model and as an actress. And then as you grow older, there is less work. In fact, I wasn't working at all as a model. And even acting was really slowing down. I have two children. They were grown up and they moved out of the house. So I had a lot of time in my hand. I was a little bit bored. And I always loved animal behavior. It was something that I've always read about. And when I was a little girl or a teenager... It wasn't really something that was offered at the university. I grew up in Italy. There was biology, zoology, but there wasn't really animal behavior, and I was specifically interested in animal behavior. And then one day I attended at Hunter College a lecture by the great Temple Graydon, who is this woman who is a big animal advocate, and she designed a slaughterhouse to make it easier for the animal to die. It's fascinating, contradictory, but also fascinating, and she's really a top scientist. And I went to hear her talk, and they were handing out animal behavioral study, a new department at Hunter College in New York, where I live. So I signed up that evening, and because I always was curious about it, it was always something I wanted to do, but I didn't think it was accessible for me, you know, at this point at my age. So I did graduate just last May. Oh, congratulations. congratulations. Thanks. And what was it like for you to be back in a classroom? It was great. You know, actually, it wasn't the only one my age. There were a lot of people, at least for the first year or so of the master, there were a lot of people that were retired. Mm -hmm. So like me, they felt like, and they had curiosities, they had hobbies, and they came back to university to at least satisfy part of it. Sometimes they audit the classes. I couldn't audit the classes because I'm not disciplined enough. I needed the fear of the exam, the grade, Mm -hmm. because incredibly enough, although work had stopped, it started again. And so it was difficult for me to work and study at the same time because as an actress, you're very nomadic. And as a student, you have to stay in class. You can't travel so much. So I think if I audited it and I didn't commit, I was going to postpone it. Mm-hmm. And I had attempted to study it before. And I always gave it up because work was too demanding. So I said, okay, I'm going to do it. And it worked. And you do learn a lot. I learned a lot. And mm-hmm. I translated all I've learned in Linkling Circus. So the idea, the name Circus, is because I wanted to give it an entertainment uh, quality. And my dog is with me and Andy is with me as a puppeteer. And we want to do a circus, but we want to talk about animal cognition, their ability to feel, mm-hmm. their ability to understand, to think, to make choices, which is something that has been generally denied to animals. They say Mm -hmm. their behavior is based on instinct, just like machine, stimulus-response, stimulus-response. But new science proved that, no, there is a continuity, even a cognitive continuity between us and animals. I mean, everybody knows that the bones that 
constitute our hands, can constitute the wing of a bat or the fin of a whale, mm -hmm. is the same, only they adapt it as we have become different species. We must have come from something original, and then in the thousands and thousands of years, we became different species. And so we differentiate, but it's still some continuity, a link. But the cognitive link is not really recognized. We think mm -hmm. we are the only one who are capable of thinking, pondering, which actions to take, uh, have a judgment. But this seems to have collapsed. Yeah. And do you think that if people recognize that animals have cognition, that they have feelings, that they are, you know, sentient beings, maybe not quite at our level, but around there, that it would be like unbearable and that the order of the world would have to change. So it's just <laughs> something that people deny because to give them that much autonomy would kind of upend the structure uh, of society. Well, of course, when Darwin, with his theory of evolution, said we were linked with animals, a lot of people took great offense. They said we have nothing to do with animals. We are separated. We are different from them. Genetically, also nowadays, we know Darwin didn't know genetic. It wasn't yet discovered. But we also know genetically that we share a lot with animals. So there is a link. I find that to be very touching that we're all connected, even with plants. I do know that, yes, if you recognize that animals are sentient, you probably have a bigger moral issue. But I am not a vegetarian. I'm not vegan. I'm a carnivore. And yes, I agree that it's harder. And it should be harder. And the animal eat us, so we eat them. That, I think, is an order in nature. Mm. But I think I try as much as I can to eat meat of animals that are not tortured. They are not mm. kept in cages. They are not filled with hormones. It's also healthy for us. But I do think there is a natural world, and the natural world, we eat each other. Well, <laughs> something I love, I was watching your mommy's series with the hamsters. Yes. And so, you know, it's about how hamsters eat mm -hmm. their young, mm -hmm. that they, you deliver all these babies and then you decide, hmm, I only want eight, so I'll eat two of these because you have 10. And it's very funny, but, you know, it's taboo, of course, in our society, but... Well, of course, it's a in our society. Yes, <laughs> should be. Um, so should the question be, yes. of maternal instinct was interesting because now that women entering the science and the fields where generally men had been, they asked questions that maybe a man was not so interested. For example, maternal mm. instinct, we all talk about it, but really when we have to define it scientifically, nobody knows it. A maternal instinct, we assume, is maternal love for babies, so automatically you would protect them. But these women scientists, among which Alene Zouk, with whom I've collaborated in this series called Mama, looked into different species to see if there was a common denominator to all females that you could say, yes, this is the maternal instinct. And instead she found, once again, these incredible varieties, the biodiversity there is out there. Yes, there are mamas like us who protect our children, and a hamster might also protect her children, but if there is too many, she eats a few. <laughs> so she can recuperate some of the energy without abandoning the other babies. So she's very smart in a way. Yeah. <laughs> but maternal Maternal instinct is difficult to define as one thing. And there are other, you know, there is a spider called the Ialgandros that lets the baby eat her. She protects the egg sac, and then when her babies come out, the first thing they eat is herself. Not only that, she helps the baby eat herself by dissolving her body into a mush because they are babies and it's easier for them to eat mush. So you see that there is an incredible diversity from 
top, top, top sacrifice of the Alejandros to the hamster, who's much more practical and eats a few babies. <laughs> it is too many. I also saw in a video, I think that's related to Link Link Circus, is you point out that we also have maternal feelings to things that are not necessarily our babies, like our dogs. Yes. So... Was there a time when you were sort of figuring out your maternal instincts when it came to <laughs> the animals that you house and that you work and play with? Well, you know, we always imagined that we domesticated animal. I mean, all domestic animals come from wild stock. You know, mm-hmm. we created the great-great-grandfather of the boar became the domestic pig. Then it was a great-great-great-grandfather of a cow. Actually, the original cow was called the Aruk species mm. that has become our domestic cows. And... We did that also with dogs. Dogs come from wolf, and they have been slowly domesticated. Domestication is when there are so many different genetics that you start to look different from your original, and you want to give it a different name. And in science, it's called speciation, and that's Mm -hmm. why we call the wolf and we call the dog. But they are very similar still. They can make viable puppies. A wolf can have puppies with a dog, for example. So... We always imagined that when we did domestication, which was our ancestor, they manipulated evolution. They didn't know about evolution. That was discovered by Charles Darwin 150 years ago. But they knew that children looked like parents. And so when they started farming, they selected the pigs that were maybe fatter or they were calmer because mm-hmm. they were easier to handle and fatter because there was the meat was more delicious if it had fat content. Century after century, they modified the animals that became the domestic pig. But we'd never thought about that we all co-evolved. So there must have been also some pressure of the animal on us. Mm -hmm. And the wolf was not really domesticated for us to eat it. Yes, in certain countries, they eat dogs, but it's rare. Most of the time, Dog is man's best friend, is the companion, whether you use it for hunting or for guarding or for herding sheep or just for companionship. So why not also the wolf domesticating us and kidnapping in us the feelings that we generally reserve for our babies for themselves? Because we are the top predators. We are much more aggressive than a wolf. So it could be that dogs have found a way to elicit in us tender feelings Mm -hmm. so that we are not going to be aggressive toward Mm -hmm. them. That's fascinating. Talk about your farm and the kind of animals you have there. And I gather that growing up, you were also interested in animals, but did your kind of real focus and curiosity start when you began farming? No, really, I always loved animals, and I started farming because in Italy, there's a very strong culture of food and therefore farming. And the farms are not very far from the town. It's not like in America. I live in New York. We're here in Los Angeles. The farms are so far away, and the farm here are big industrial farms that are enormous. You can't really go visit. But in Italy, they are very family-run farms, small, most of the time, still today. So there is a much more direct It's part of our culture, even if you grew up in Rome, and I miss that. And so for a while, I did think to go back to school and study to become a farmer. But when I was 20, 25, people were leaving the farms because all the industrial farming, that was the time when the industrial farming came to be. And so the idea to have an artisanal farm seemed to me so... People said, what are you talking about? You're not going to make a living. And when you're young... You have to make a living, you know, you have to think of a job that makes a living. So I I didn't go to farming. But now, a piece of land came available next to my house. And of course, I can retire. I was wise enough to set aside some money. I don't have to work. 
I work because I like it. And also the farm seemed to me something that I always wanted. And instead of having a house with a swimming pool and a tennis court, I want to have a farm. <laughs> and this has became, so from a toy or from a luxury, it became incredible. First of all, what it does to the community. To have a small artisanal farm, it's incredibly appealing to mothers who are coming with their children and can show chickens, can show ducks, can show sheep, can show the different kind of wool that sheep have. Because, of course, each breed offers wool for a carpet, but it's not the same wool that we would use for our sweaters. It has to be a much softer one, but the carpet has to be a much stronger one, that you have different breeds of sheep, vegetable. Where is the season where carrots grow? Where is the season where squash grows? And so we have a farm now that has way beyond my personal pleasure. It's become really part of the community where I live, very present for the community, mm -hmm. the school, everybody. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at KPFK in sunny Studio City. We've been listening to our interview with Isabella Rossellini. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Charles Yu in the studio with us today. Charles's latest book is called Interior Chinatown, and he is here to recommend a book for us. Charles, what book are you going to recommend? I'm going to recommend Untangled by Lisa Damore. Mm -hmm. It's a book about guiding your adolescent daughter through seven stages of, or seven different threads of adolescence that sometimes get conflated, but she does, I, I think she does a really great job of untangling these things and like explain to me in a lot of ways mistakes I was making as a dad and ways to think about and empathize with her that I just, it opened my eyes. So I loved it. Interesting. I mean, as a former adolescent girl, I can't imagine my father untangling anything. Um, and, and even now, really. So what are some of the threads that she pulls out of the adolescent mess? Right. So, for instance, finding her own social circle versus being independent from her parents. I might be getting this slightly wrong, but she decouples those in a way that sometimes it's very easy to think of them as exactly the same thing because all you hear is, I don't want this or I don't, I'm rejecting you. Whereas I think there are independent journeys with her both moving outside the family circle, but also dealing with the external social, you know, society of seventh graders, for instance, right. in my case. Um, and then later on making her own goals. Mm -hmm. Um, defining herself in terms of who she's going to become. And they're, they're just things that all seem f fundamental, so much to the point where they're easy to just think of, oh, that's how a person grows up. But I, I also like the specificity of the challenges of being a girl versus, I mean, I have a girl and a boy. And I, while some of it was applicable to boys as well, you know, a lot of it was very, it just felt right into the heart of like things that specific conversations that we'd had, you know, I, one specific thing is sort of the externalizing that sometimes the, my daughter can do for instance, and what that really is, what's going on. You know, mm -hmm. it's not just her sort of dumping negativity, but it, there's something valuable that I can do in that moment. And I, I hadn't thought of it that way. So. Well, that sounds great. And like a very responsible and sweet thing for a dad to read. <laughs> I'm trying. It's all I can, you know, I only remember the, the bad moments. Not the oh, it's, ones. I mean, 
a 12-year-old girl. It's, it's like a, a demon let loose onto the world. <laughs> and then they gather together in school, and then they're demons to each other. And then eventually they'll grow out of it and become nor- normal people again. But I remember it well, unfortunately. Um, I meant my bad moments, but yes. Oh, I, I, her bad moments. <laughs> Not hers, but yes. As a dad, I, it's it's just, it's a challenge, but also it's, it's a lot of joy too. So. Yeah. Okay, tell us the name of the book again and the author. Untangled, and it's by Lisa Damore. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Charles Yu. His latest book is called Interior Chinatown. Thanks so much. Thanks again. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Isabella Rosalini. So I actually wanted to ask you about your pleasure. And because one of the things that I think animals offer us is, and that we maybe don't talk about enough, but is a sense of just delight and, and pleasure. Yeah. Where do you think your pleasure with animals comes from? What do you delight okay. in? Yeah, I know because you told me before we started the interview that we are, you are afraid of birds. Yeah. <laughs> and right. you're afraid that a pigeon will attack you. I had this yeah. opposite reaction. I'm always fascinated, even by pigeon in the city. They all take flights together. They seem to do kind of a dance, and then they sit again on the ledge of a... They, sometimes you see birds sitting on a wire or facing the same direction at exact same distances. And you, I just wondered, why do they all face that way? And why do they sit at this perfect distance between them? And why do pigeon all of a sudden take this flight that are very coordinated and each uh, makes the turn at the same time? So to me, they're fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I, fasci- I was born with this fascination. You know, I think you were born with certain tendencies, uh, you mm-hmm. know, like brown eyes, b- blue eyes. You don't really control it. You're just born with that. And I was born with this fascination and these questions that I realized later on in life, they were scientific questions that I asked myself. Yeah. And did your family foster these curi- this curiosity and this fascination? I think so. I, my, both my parents loved animals, mm-hmm. and we always had cats, dogs, uh, fish, hamster, but mostly cats and dogs. And of course, cats and dogs are the one that most people have and you relate to because they are also relating to us. They, they, have a, they, they bond to us, and mm-hmm. so we respond to them emotionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've noticed actually that in um, many children's books, or most children's books, it seems that animals play this huge role. And it would seem that uh, it's starting that connection just from the beginning of a child's life that animals are part of life mm-hmm. um, and that we coexist with them and that you know we're connected. But then it, it really does seem, sometimes as I read to my son these books, I think this is so disingenuous because I don't really think society is set up like this. It doesn't seem, it doesn't seem that in today's society that animals kind of are quite like at at the table with the rest of us. I don't know. You know, I'm not a sociologist, so (laughs) I don't know what is the phenomenon. I I do know I have a grandson, Ronin, Mm -hmm. and I do know that he has a lot of books about animals. Most of the time, though, the animals are human, humanized, you Mm -hmm. know. I mean, we could talk about Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse. (laughs) They're married. They're in love. They drive cars. They live in apartments. So they're not really animals. They just have the appearance of animals, but they're human. 
sometimes, so I, I've noticed sometimes reading, maybe because there is more on environmental message nowadays, sometimes uh, when I read books to uh, Ronin, there are glimpses into a real animal behavior. So you might have uh, uh, an animal that has, you know, like, 5,000 babies, like a queen bee, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that would have so many babies or, you know, comical aspect. And, it, and that influenced me. For sure, that was what influenced me. And I emphasize this, although I have to say my shows, Link Link Circus, Green Porno, Mamas, Seduce Me and, and, and the monologue, the little circus that I'm presenting now. They are not really for children. They are for adults. I mean, children would come, but I think that I'm also talking about science and Darwin. I make it fun and I make it comical, but I think it's really more for adults uh, or young adults. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when did you start to figure out how to incorporate your um, life as a performer with your interest in animal behavior? You know, it was just uh, uh, Robert Redford has uh, Sundance. It's mm -hmm. a, also a television. It's not only the film festival and a television station. The Institute is also a platform for experimentation. And so the Sundance were fascinated about 12, 10, 12 years ago when YouTube started because they thought that the film, short film format can be reproposed. Then the shortest film program you could do is 20 minutes for television, which is considered a half hour, plus there is a little bit of time for advertisement. Yeah. And then there is the hour-long format, and then there is the two-hour films. But they were not anymore the short format. But if you go back at the origin of cinema, the short film format was very popular, and mm -hmm. people loved it. And all of a sudden, with social media and YouTube and also now Instagram, they seem to have come back. And so Sundance contacted me because also as an actress, I've had a lot of um, work in independent film, including uh, Blue Velvet that you've mentioned. And so uh, they contacted several artists who worked with them saying, is anyone interested of making short films, mm -hmm. series? And if it is about the environment, Redford is encouraging that because he's a very committed environmentalist. And at first I didn't think of much. And then... All of a sudden, I had an idea. I said, I could do green porno. The sentence was doing a lot of green something, green environment, green kitchen, green uh, transportation. And I said, so that's how the name green porno came. And it was how animals reproduce, because we always imagine, like Minnie Mouse and, uh, and Minnie, Mickey Mouse and Minnie, that they are all like us, a man, a female, and a male mating and having sometimes many at once, sometimes one at a time, but more or less the same. But it isn't. Mm -hmm. uh, some animals change sex. They are born male, they become female. Some are hermaphrodite. They have both sexes at once. Um, so anything is possible. This biodiversity is what's so fascinating. And so I tried to capture that with green porno, and it was hugely successful on the Internet. And that's what made me continue. I mean, I didn't know this was my 12th year working on making short films. Part that it was difficult, it was to monetize short films mm. in the, in the, I mean, nowadays, now we are starting to monetize this series. But for a long time, uh, you know, I would get millions of hits, but the money didn't come back. And so I couldn't really produce more because I had invested the money and nothing was coming back. And that's where I went to the theater. Mm. I started writing for theater because the theater, you know, there is 300 seats. 
you sell them, you sell 200 or 300, some of it to percentage goes to the theater, so percentage goes to me, and there is a flow of money, and that's why I went back to the theater, really to just monetize my work. Yeah. I wondered if you could talk about the kind of arc of your career, um, starting off as a model, and then becoming an actress, and now making your own films and theater, um, just that that difference of kind of working for other people and um, and then creating, giving, been giving the power to create your own. Well, exactly. Things. I mean, you know, when I write for myself is my voice. When I work for others, whether it's a modeling job or uh, acting, I feel that I am the voice of the director or the voice of the photographer. So I make myself completely available as much as I can to try to um, help them achieve the vision that they have in their mind. And I've worked with very experimental uh, directors, uh, from David Lynch uh, to Peter Weir, to well, Peter Weir is very established, uh, even in the commercial world, uh, but Bob Wilson, um, Guy Madden, with, I've just played uh, Federico Fellini in Guy Madden's latest film, so oh. I'm not even a man, let <laughs> <laughs> alone. <laughs> so, and as you said, I can only think of you as playing Federico Fellini. That was good enough for me. Wow. I said, of course I'll do it. So I love to play and I love to be experimental. You know, and then when I start writing my own thing, it all came together. I mean, in my f in my work, costumes are very important, and I think I've learned a lot by being a model, mm. uh, transforming myself in these animals and being able to design the costume. And Andy Byers executes them and adds a lot of detail. So my, my, I have to say I have to give him a lot of credit for making it much better than my imagination. But the original thought and the original solution of the costumes always comes from me. And then I learned that modeling. And I've also went to, when I, um, when I was young, I went to um, an academy. Uh, it's called Academia di Costume Moda. I wanted to become a costume designer mm -hmm. and then worked in fashion. So there was a link. And acting, of course, gives you um, the possibility of clarity. You have to deliver, of course, you have to elicit in feelings and uh, the feelings have to come should have come out of you and people can read these feelings when they look at you. But also you learn that sometimes you can have a lot of feelings and nothing comes across. You know that as an actor. So you have to remember talking to uh, Jeff Bridges once and Jeff said, you know, I look at statues and I looked at position and if somebody is holding the, the hand over their he uh, forehead, immediately I think of somebody thinking or frowning. There is certain things, and he said, you know, sometimes I incorporate, it's not only feeling, but I also incorporate uh, statues and position and postures because you deliver it more clearly. Mm. And that, it made a lot of sense to me. And so, you know, that also helped with my dire directing. So mm -hmm. it, to me, it all came together. They are not so separated, this career, only that I found my voice later in life for several reasons. One is that when you're young and if you are beautiful, and I, I mean, I, I hope I don't sound pretentious, <laughs> but I was a model, so I you mean, have to have a certain look. I think no one will argue. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, won't, I won't argue. You're, you're beautiful. There is that thing of be beautiful and shut up. You know, mm -hmm. it was very much in the 80s and 90s when I was top my career as a model. It was very much that. Uh, be beautiful and shut up. There was no um, identity to us model. And then it's the supermodel that brought in the 
the identity. We knew the name of Linda Evangelista, Cindy Crawford, uh, Naomi Campbell. They were the first one that you knew the, the names and you knew their personalities. And so little by little, women were given a voice. But it wasn't only women in the modeling world. I think there was mirroring what was happening. Here I am being interviewed by two women on a radio show. It wouldn't have happened 20 years ago mm. or 30 years ago. Now women are scientists. So we do have the Marlene Zook that questions, what is maternal instinct? Let's do experiments and, and look at it in, from a scientific point of view. So I think this giving women's voice and me becoming a director was also on the wave of women taking charge of their lives and every profession. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I don't want to infer too much, and I guess this is kind of a leading question, but do you feel like when it was like, oh, you're you're beautiful, just be quiet, do you see a correlation of that you were kind of treated almost like an animal, like with someone with no thoughts and just about, you know, yeah. your presence and, and they Actually, more? they're very interesting studies where they do that parallel. You know, they see that uh, any... Uh, ism, you know, like racism or uh, sexism, or I don't know if we can say animalism. <laughs> I think it means something else. But they have they have similar bases. One group says we are better, we are superior, and you are inferior, so you have to obey. And there is a common denominator. Yes. Mm -hmm. We have been speaking with Isabella Rossellini. Thank you so much, Isabella, for coming in and speaking with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARP Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 